All right, let's let's turn our direct our attention in the direction of God's word this morning. And to do that, I'll invite you to take your Bible and join me in Acts chapter four this morning in the New New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then comes the book of Acts and chapter four. If you need a Bible today, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back. Be glad to share a copy with you. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. If uh, you would grab that out, looks like this. Grab that out of your bulletin. That will be helpful along the way. And if I could just ask you, please, to silence that cell phone. If that hasn't happened, that would be a great thought, too. Now, church family, if someone were to ask you, what is the Christian life really all about, what would you say? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Well, hey, what do you know? Right there, it says it. You believe it? Amen. It is all about Jesus. And I'm so glad that that is what you would say, because Jesus is, after all, the beginning, the middle, the end of our faith. He is our foundation. He's our purpose. He is our ultimate destination. We are, if you are visiting us today, and we're glad if that is the thought that you found the Bible Church this morning, but we are enjoying together uh, in this time, a, a little four-part mini-series called It's All About Jesus. We're searching out just a few of the many places in God's Word that clearly and powerfully remind us of that truth. The fact that for us, it is all about Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is who unites us, holds us, and binds us together as the Bible Church family. This morning, our search for another of these places that affirm that it's all about Jesus, that truth, uh, takes us to the book of Acts and chapter 4 today. Now, I've just dropped you into the middle of this place. You didn't know it was coming, so uh, allow me to just set a little bit of a context for our time together. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus, right before he returns to heaven, repeats more, uh, one more time the command to his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. You go into chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, empowering them for a new chapter in the redemption story. The church is born, and Peter preaches Jesus. And on this day, 3,000 people are saved and baptized. It's an amazing moment, the birth of the church, chapter 2. This new thing called the church experiences a powerful sense of of unity and community as it grows uh, rapidly. Then you come to chapter 3, and Peter and John heal a crippled man by the power of God. A crowd gathers. Peter doesn't miss the opportunity. He preaches Jesus again. And in this sermon, he points out that Jesus is the author of life and that he rose from the dead and that all people on the earth are going to be blessed through Jesus. Jesus will have a global impact is the, is the heart of the message that Peter preaches. When we come to chapter 4, we learn that the Jewish religious leadership is incensed by Peter and John's actions, incensed more by their message. They throw the two of them in jail, and the next day they bring them before what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be the equivalent today of our Supreme Court. So Peter and John are standing before the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. We pick up the unfolding drama in verse 7 of chapter 4. 
And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Healed his crippled man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. (laughs) We do say amen and amen. Peter says, what you have seen was done by the power of Jesus and in his name. In other words, the miracle of healing this this crippled man was really not about the crippled man at all. Miracles in scripture are never ends in themselves. They are there to point to something else. uh, they They are attractors. They are validators of a greater truth or a greater claim. And that's Peter here. This man was healed by the power of Jesus, but I want you to know that in Jesus and through Jesus alone, there is salvation. Because salvation is the infinitely greater miracle, is it not? Peter wants all present to know that Jesus is the way to be saved. Now this is the setup then for one of the most incredible and powerful it's all about Jesus declarations that we find anywhere in scripture. And that is verse 12 of chapter 4. Can we read this verse aloud together as a church family? Let's do it. Ready? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we all say amen and amen. We believe it, right? We believe this. Let's break this verse down together just a little bit. The subject of the verse is who? Who's the subject of the verse? Jesus. Obviously, it's Jesus. He's not named in verse 12, but he is in verse 10 and again in verse 11. And we do absolutely no harm to the integrity of verse 12 if we replace the words, no other name under heaven given among men with Jesus' name. So the verse would then read, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one but Jesus by which we must be saved. It's all about Jesus. As we continue to break the verse down, we come upon the words salvation and saved. Salvation in no one else, no one by whom we must be saved but Jesus. Both share the same Greek root word, sozo, meaning to rescue or to deliver or to save. And so the obvious question that follows is, well, saved from what? Why do we need to be saved and who or what are we needing to be saved from? Salvation and saved are are both biblical words that point in the direction of mankind's basic need. We need to be saved from something. And what do we need to be saved from? Get ready. We need to be saved from God. 
Did, did you hear that, right? Did, 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 did you hear me? Yeah? We need to be saved from God. What? God? Really? Really, Tim? God? I thought we, I thought we worship God and we love God and, and we want to be with God. What do you mean we need to be saved from God? Salvation and saved are the Bible's words that tell us that we need to be saved from the wrath of God and from God's righteous judgment against the sin that is in our lives. We need saving from divine wrath and judgment. Is that a new thought? No, I don't think that's a new thought. Framed the way that we framed it here in this moment might have caught you off guard a little bit. But Holy Scripture just doesn't sugarcoat how it really is for us apart from Jesus being in our lives. We are sinners. We are enemies of God who are in rebellion against him. The Bible describes us as being slaves to sin from birth, sinners by conduct, sinners by actions, sinners by choice, owing a sin debt to God that we can never pay or work off by being good people. We, having inherited a sin nature from our parents, have by all of our own choices violated the one true, holy, and sinless God's moral law. And all of us have done this. Not just some, but all of us. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody gets an out of jail free card you know you're all in it i'm in it we're all in it together the world is in it all have sinned the bible calls us it takes it even farther the bible calls us enemies of god when we are without jesus sinners who are in rebellion against him check this out this comes out of romans chapter 5 these are verses many of you would be familiar with we'll pick it up at verse 6 we'll put it on the screen for you You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless under the power of sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified, that means pronounced not guilty by his blood, by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? God's wrath through Jesus, through him. For if when we were God's what? His enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The sinner and God brought together through the work of Jesus. Yeah? Could it be more clear? I don't know how it could be more clear. Without Jesus, we all stand in a place where sin in us actually makes us God's enemies objects of his righteous wrath and his holy decree against sin and us declares us to be deserving of an eternal separation from his holiness in a place the bible calls hell not a popular word in our day but a reality nonetheless romans 6:23 puts it this way the wages of sin is 
death. We know the verse. The Bible says we all die. We all die. We might think that people die because of cancer or old age or accidents or heart disease or something else. But according to the Bible, the real reason we all die is because of our, say it, sin. Yes. And in this verse, the word death is not just referring to physical death. This is the Bible's word for separation from God forever. Divine judgment. The wage that sin pays is eternity separated from God. That's the truth. That's scripture's truth. If all that was in view was physical death as a result of our sin, yeah, that wouldn't be a pleasant thought. But once dead, then done, right? (laughs) But that's not the case, is it? We are eternal beings. We are image bearers of the eternal God. God's holiness, his holy character has been assaulted by our sin. And so there remains his infinitely intense hatred of sin and wrath against our sin. And there remains his judgment against our sin. Physical death is nothing compared to what awaits a sinner after physical death. The Bible says all of us, each of us will stand before God and there will be judgment. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And as a sinner, to stand before holy God without any way out, that is a truly terrifying prospect, is it not? God in his righteous, holy, sinless perfection can render only one verdict, and the verdict is guilty. Eternal separation from me, hell. That's the verdict. We might plead for him to be kind or merciful, but in that moment, after this life is done, it is too late to plead. His holiness requires a just declaration against the sin in us. Anything less would be to compromise his holy character. We cry out, well, where's the court of appeals? There is no court of appeals because he's the highest court of all. So what does all this have to do with Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and with the words salvation and being saved? The word salvation in the New Testament describes what we, what every sinner truly needs. And what sinners truly need is to be saved from the just and righteous judgment of God that his holiness demands. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Salvation is all about that. And Acts 4.12 is saying there is an alternative to God's wrath and to God's judgment. There is salvation in no one else, but there is one. And his name is Jesus. By which we must be saved. It is all about Amen and amen. Perhaps you have at one time or another seen the popular reality TV show Deadliest Catch. It's a show, if you're not familiar with it, it chronicles the lives of of crab fishermen on Alaska's Bering Sea. And the cameras follow these crab fishermen as they do their job through a crabbing season, often working in these terrific, savage storms that batter the ships and batter the crews. And at least once in every season of this show, there is an episode about a crab boat that goes down 
or it gets dashed on the rocks and the crew is in mortal peril and the cameras are all over the thing. And I just want you to imagine this now. Here comes the Coast Guard. The orange helicopter comes flying in, which it does in the show. And imagine now this helicopter hovering above the, 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 the guys in this stormy ocean clinging to a sinking boat and the pilot of the helicopter over the loudspeaker from above says, Hey, are you guys cold? Hey, do you need a blanket? Would you like some gloves? Homemade chicken soup, perhaps? How absurd that would be, right? For the pilot to do that. The crew looks back in wide-eyed tower and says, No, we need none of those things. We need to be Saved. Save us from an otherwise certain death. That is how every sinner needs to see themselves spiritually. We are sinners lost in an ocean of separation and holy wrath and divine righteous judgment. And we are about to die. Only in in this case, it's eternal death. It's eternal separation. The cry of every sinner's heart will be sooner or later. Hopefully it's sooner. It will be a cry to be saved. Saved from the deserved and just wrath of God against sin. And that is the sense behind the words salvation and saved in verse 12. Are you with me? If you flip your note page over and we break verse 12 out just a little bit more, we're told straight up salvation is found in no other name. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, the truth is that Acts 4.12 does not sit well with most folks in our contemporary culture. The truth that is proclaiming is not well received by our culture. That is no surprise because it is declaring that there is only one way to be saved. And what's striking here is who Peter is talking to when he says this. He's he's not talking to a a bunch of God-rejecting atheists and unbelievers here. He's talking to the elite spiritual leaders of the, the nation of the Jewish people. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the presumed spiritual elite. They have religion. Oh, they've got religion running through their veins in full measure. But Peter doesn't say to them, hey, you guys got your religion. We've got our religion. You have your way to God. We've got our way to God. Everything's cool. We'll all meet on the other side. Peter doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, uh, you guys, your way will get you to heaven. My way will get you to heaven too, but I think my way is superior to yours, but we'll both get there. He does not say that. Peter makes a Holy Spirit-inspired, non-negotiable, incredibly intolerant, exclusive, restrictive, intensely narrow declaration. He says, there is only one who saves. His name is Jesus. There is no one else. Well, you talk about a message that 
that is not well received in our day. Imagine these words being voiced today on some popular TV talk show. Whoever spoke those words, that would be their first and last appearance on that show, wouldn't it? To claim that any one thing is the most superior way or the only way is to declare that you have exclusive truth. And our culture rejects that idea soundly. In fact, sometimes our culture reacts violently against that truth, that there is one way. Our culture doesn't want but expects everyone to say, I'm this way, you're that way, we're all good. Everybody's good. I believe this, you hold to that. If you believe that and it makes you happy, great. I believe this, it makes me happy. Do not judge me, do not correct me, do not try to enlighten me. My way is as good as your way. Nobody minds in our culture if we say that. But when Christianity says that there is only one way, well, how proud, how arrogant, how intolerant, how narrow and self-promoting you are to think like that. Our answer to this charge has to be, (laughs) we're not saying it. We're not saying it. I'm not saying that this morning. God is saying that, right? God is proclaiming this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the one way. Peter essentially says that in 4.12. And many other places in the Bible say this as well. In the end, those who take offense at the words of 4.12 have an issue with God's Holy Spirit-inspired word, don't they? Because it's God who's making this declaration. It's not us. But we are the most readily available targets since they can't get to God, right? And again, let's be sure that when we declare salvation is found in no other name, that the name that we're referring to is the name of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. There are many people named Jesus in our world right now, right? Jesus, many, many, many. They can't save anybody, right? They can't. But here in 412, the name means all that the biblical Jesus is in his person, fully God, fully human, and all of what he has done for sinners, died on the cross to atone for the sinner's sin, buried, rose from the dead, victor over sin, death, and the grave. That Jesus is the one we mean when we say Jesus. The name summarizes all of the saving actions of God and his son for the sake of sinners, puts it in a single word. So I'm not believing in the name Jesus. I'm believing in the person Jesus, the historical person, the second person of the Trinity and what the Bible says he has done for me. There is no other Savior for sinners. There is no other name but Jesus by which we must be saved. It is all about Jesus. This was really the rallying cry of the reformers in the middle of the 1500s when the Catholic Church had become so corrupt and twisted in its practices and theology that 
that some could just, just, just had to, to cry out and say, enough is enough. We refer to them today historically as the reformers. But they would distill this message of Jesus being everything down into what was called the five sole. Maybe you have, have heard of this before, the five sole. Sola is Latin for, for alone. And, and so they would say sola scriptura, which means what? Scripture alone. Nothing else. Not adding anything to Scripture. Sola gratia means by grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. This has been and always will be, church family, the rallying cry and the immovable foundation of every biblically healthy church. Do you realize that? This will be the cry. Jesus alone saves is at the core of this cry. This truth will never change. It can never change. Jesus alone. And why? Why is it imperative that we know why it is Jesus alone that saves? How do we know that's true? That it will never change? Well, on your note page, three reasons. First, this is true. Jesus alone will never change because God's character never changes. Agreed? God's character never changes. Now, in a seminary classroom, this truth would be known as the immutability of God. When we talk about the immutability of God, we're speaking about the fact that he is unchanging and he is unchangeable. The reason he is this way is because he transcends. He is over, he's above, he's beyond, he is outside of everything else that exists. He transcends everything, therefore he is immutable, unchanging. We, on the other hand, we change all the time, don't we? We change every day. We grow a little older every day. We're not the same as we were yesterday. The change might be minute, but it's there. Just look in the mirror. There's a change. We change our minds. We change our opinions about things. Changing circumstances require that we do something that we hadn't planned on doing. We change. God isn't like us, though, is he? There are no factors, influences, circumstances, or forces that can come against him and require him to change. Because if he had to yield in any way to any force, then he's no longer what? He's no longer God. He's no longer God. He would not be all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful all the time after all. If there's something that he must give ground to, He is not our God today, right? He is immutable. Malachi 3.6, we hear God say this about himself. For I am the Lord, I do not change. The New Testament version of that, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from God, from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The unchangeableness of God is at one and the same time a wonderful and a terrifying truth depending on which side of salvation you are standing on in this moment. 
For the genuine believer in Jesus, the immutability of God is a wonderful truth, is it not? It's a wonderful truth. The one who has put his or her full trust in God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, looks at his or her unchanging God and says, how gloriously wonderful that you never change. Because that means your love for me never changes. That means your mercy will never decrease in my life. That means that your grace toward me will always be for me. It means that you will never vary in your promise to save me by Jesus. Because you don't change. God's immutability ensures that our salvation will never cease to be or become something other than what it is right now. Praise God for his immutability. Now, as Christians, we often call this aspect of God's nature his faithfulness. We rarely use the word immutability. We thank God for his faithfulness. But what we're really thanking God for is his immutability. We all might be caught off guard if we were in a life group gathering and we were praying and someone was praying and they thanked God for his immutability. Everyone would be praying, their eyes closed, and then they hear, thank you, God, for your immutability. And everybody would do what we do when that happens. And we open one eye and we kind of look over to see who prayed that way. And then we close our eye real quick, right? But we want to know who said that. How cool would it be if a person prayed that in our life group study and no one looked up because we were all well acquainted with the word immutability. But we're not. So faithfulness works great too. Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Because he doesn't change. God is faithful to himself, to his nature, to his being. And because he is faithful to himself, he must be faithful to us and to the salvation promise that he has made to us in Jesus. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, as we sang a moment ago repeatedly, great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Man, we love that, don't we? We love to sing those words. Our unchanging God, only Christians... Real Christians can celebrate the unchanging, immutable nature of God. But, but for those who have died and are presently separated from God and are awaiting judgment in this moment, or for those who are alive right now but refuse to call upon Jesus and then they die without Jesus in their life, hell is their future. Scripture says that. And God's immutability, his unchangeableness, is a terrifying beyond all comprehending reality if you are in such a position. Do you understand that? Do you follow that? And I'm not reaching here for dramatic effect when I say that for anyone who has turned their back on the name and enters eternity without Jesus... Theirs is an utterly in vain hope that God will change and that their future will be anything other than a separation from God forever. Because he doesn't change. How can we not recall the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? Do you remember this, this story? Yeah? 
At a point in the story, which many believe is not a story at all because Jesus actually used a a personal name, so perhaps he's recounting an event, the rich man in this story has died and has been judged to hell. And from this place, he cries out, please allow Lazarus to just dip his finger in water and touch the tip of my tongue. That's his cry. And then the response is, that cannot happen. There is a great chasm that separates us. This is the vain hope that will, will not and cannot be realized because of the immutability of God. Oh, the horror of hell. It will never change because God never changes. That is a devastating truth if Jesus is not in your life. Amen? But for those who have embraced the name through simple faith, Jesus, you died for me. You paid my sin debt. You satisfied the justice of God on my behalf. You rose from the dead, conqueror of sin, death, and the grave. I believe in you, and I love you for loving me. For the one who says that, it is the immutability and the unchangeableness of God that keeps us secure in him. John 10, 27 to 30, you know these words. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They can't. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father, we are Why Jesus alone will never change? Second reason, because mankind's need never changes, right? Our need never changes. What do we need? What do we need, church? Well, I could use a ride home today. I need a ride home. I could use some rent money. (laughs) I need a job. A godly girlfriend, a godly boyfriend, that would be nice. We all have needs. Truth be told, most of our needs are are temporary and passing. Something new replaces yesterday's need, right? With something else and on and on it goes. But there is one need that we all have that has always been our most essential and unchanging need. And the need we have is for the sin in our lives that keeps us from God and God from us to be dealt with permanently once and for all. We need forgiveness of our sin. We need God's forgiveness. And and God has decreed that there is only one sacrifice for sin that has ever been made that can atone for and absorb the wrath of God against our sin. And God has said, that one sacrifice is my son offered on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, through the cross, the forgiveness of sins. That's our need, right? To be forgiven. The forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Dying in our place, dying to pay our sin debt, dying to preserve God's justice while at the same time permitting God to forgive us. That's the one sacrifice I'll accept, God says. Jesus. No other. 
Now, if our need for forgiveness were ever to change, then probably the remedy would change too. But the Bible says our need never changes. Romans 3.12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's our need to be forgiven. In this room today, there are a variety of, 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 of likes and dislikes, pleasures, preferences, dress, hobbies, interests. There's a lot of variety in this room. But at the core, we are all in the exact same place with respect to sin. We are sinners and we need forgiveness. We need what Adam and Eve needed. We need what Abraham of old needed. We need what Peter and Paul needed and what George Washington needed and what Billy Graham needed and what your nice neighbor needs. We need forgiveness. We need forgiveness of sin from the hand of holy God. No amount of self-effort or good deed doing can ever take that need away. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like what? Like filthy rags. We all need forgiveness. We don't need to just try harder to be good. We need forgiveness And that need will never change. The righteous decree of God, the wages of sin is death. Separation from me forever. The Bible, though, says that our need for forgiveness never changes. Therefore, the solution to our need will never change either. That brings us back to Acts 4.12 and to a third truly wonderful reason that this verse stands forever. That third reason, the sufficiency of Jesus' work will never change. Amen? It never changes. Just because something worked in the past doesn't mean that it will always work, right? Would you agree with that? Just because it worked back then, it may not work now. Let me illustrate that. Hussein Bolt, do you know the name? Hussein Bolt is the fastest man in the world. He runs a 9.6 100 meters. That is really, really fast. He's won the gold medal in this event for the past three Olympics. No one has ever done that before. Back in 1988, Carl Lewis, know that name? Carl Lewis was the fastest man in the world. He won the gold medal in the 88 Olympics. Did you know that Lewis would not even have gotten a medal in the 2016 games? He wouldn't even have made the podium with his winning time in 88. What was good enough in 1988 is not good enough now. And that's the way that many things are. So someone might be tempted to look at the gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for sinners, and say, well, it worked for Peter It worked for Paul. It worked for the early church. But how do we know that Jesus' death is still sufficient today to work for me? How do we know it will still work for us? Church family, the way that we know that is because of what God has said, right? God says that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice 
for sin, the once for all atoning payment for sin, completely sufficient in time for all of time to pay the sinner's debt to God. Where does it say that, Pastor Tim? How about Hebrews 9, 27 and 28? Just as it is appointed to man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered, what's the next word? Once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting? Oh, man. Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. That means set apart and made clean through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What are the next three words? Once for all. It's done. Sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. Hebrews 10.14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus doesn't just die for first century Christians or Christians who believe in him in the 1800s. He died for sinners in all ages, once and for all, and Jesus' death in our place is sufficient for all time. There's a hymn we rarely hear sung anymore in the church, but I remember singing this song and hearing my mom and dad sing it when I was a small boy in church. There is still room at the cross for you. If you're old enough, you might remember that, that song and that hymn. The message is really simple. It doesn't matter how many people have come to the cross of Jesus or how many have taken God up on his offer for, of forgiveness through Jesus. There is always sufficient saving room and power in Jesus' death and resurrection for anyone who will take his name into his or her heart anyone because the work is sufficient Hebrews 7.25 consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them do you believe it? Amen. Right now, this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father and he is interceding on behalf of sinners whom he is redeeming by his blood. His desire to save hasn't grown cold. His strength to save has not diminished. His commitment to save has not lessened and his passion to save has not faded away. He is sufficient. We never have to worry, brothers and sisters, that after we've been then there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, God is going to suddenly come along and say, you know what? On second thought, you guys really are dirty, rotten sinners. And I can't believe you've hung out with me for 10,000 years, but that's over. We're done. You're done. Can you imagine? That will never happen, will it? That will never happen. Why? Because God's character never changes. Mankind's need will never change. And the sufficiency of Jesus' work will never change. After 10,000 years, we've just begun. We've just begun. Jesus is actively at work through his gospel. By his spirit to save sinners. He's as animated for what he is doing in the world right now as he was the day that a virgin conceived and Jesus entered the human stream. He never gets tired. He never gets bored or worn out. He is unchanging God and his salvation will always work for sinners who call out to him in simple saving faith.
He is, as Hebrews 13.8 says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which is just another way, church family, of saying it is all about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the the beauty and the depth and the truths of Acts 4.12. Thank you for letting us spend time here today. And Heavenly Father, I would just pray that the truths we've shared today would overwhelm the heart of anyone in this room who knows who Jesus is and what he has done but has not taken these truths into his or her life. Today's the day. Now's the moment. Life is being offered. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Jesus, it is all about you. Your love, your sacrifice, it's all about you and what you've accomplished for us, how we say thank you. If you be in that place today of uncertainty regarding who Jesus will be in your life, don't leave today without talking to someone, me or someone else. Don't leave today without Jesus. He died for you. For those of us who have embraced that truth, Father, we just rejoice in it so much today. In fact, in this moment now, we are going to come to your command, commanded table, Jesus. We're going to come and remember you and your death on our behalf through the bread and through the cup, the communion table. And church family, in this moment, this is our opportunity to say thank you for the truths that we've talked about today, to come to the front, take up the bread and cup and return to your seat, and there just say thank you to Jesus. We're going to invite you to do that here as the music plays in just a moment. Come. Perhaps you would want to come and get the elements for the, someone that you are with as well and, and then just take that back. We won't all take t- together, but when you and the Holy Spirit have conversed, then at that moment you take the cup and the, the bread with a thankful heart that there is one name that has saved you and he is in your life. Lord Jesus, this is your time as your people worship you through the communion table. We say thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.